0: Welcome to Real Leaders Radio, bringing you the story behind the story of the most innovative, authentic leaders we know. And now, here's your host, Sue
1: Heilbronner. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Real Leaders Radio. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and I'm excited to be here with you today. We're really honored to have with us Susan Line, Managing Director of BBG Ventures, and one of the most seasoned internet entrepreneurs and large company players that really exists, I think, in the country, if not the world. So we're delighted to have you with us, Susan. Thanks for joining us.
0: I'm really happy to be there. I, I actually wish I could be there in person because it's always better than just seeing a lot of heads across the top of the screen. But hi there.
1: As the audiences heard, we're recording this session and doing this podcast in concert with the Merge Lane Accelerator focused on companies with at least one female in leadership. So we're all on this call together. That's great. The way we love starting out these conversations is just asking for your sort of, whatever, five-minute life story.
0: I've had what in some ways looks like multiple careers, um, but there's actually a lot of connective tissue in there. I started out in the magazine world. And uh, remember, I, I graduated from high school in 1968. So I would have graduated from college in 1972 if I had not dropped out of college. But it was a long time ago and uh, very much pre-internet. We didn't have personal computers. Uh, It was a very different world. And if you wanted to um, really be part of a national conversation, if you wanted to impact the way people were thinking about the world, um, magazines was a great place to go. It really hooked me very early, hooked me while I was in college. I was out at UC Berkeley. I worked for the Berkeley Tribe. I, I made money on the side working for a couple of different magazines doing, doing fact-checking and copy editing, um, and I just loved the world. I loved working in big open rooms with teams of people where you had a job, but you did a whole lot of other things, too, and... I spent 15 very happy years in, in that world, um, ultimately launched my own magazine, got Rupert Murdoch to back it. It's a magazine about the movies that actually came as a result of a technology advance, which was the VCR. I know that's hard to believe that was an advance, but it was a huge advance. Uh, because until then, you either had to go out to the movie theater or you had to watch what was – being programmed on one of three television networks. So being able to choose movies to watch to see every Marty Scorsese movie because you had liked one um, was massive, and it created this whole new adult uh, market for films that made movies a whole lot smarter and made it really fun to write and bad. I launched that magazine in 1986, and I edited it until the end of 94, and then I went to Disney. And I went to Disney because I was asked, Uh, you know, I had been recruited by other places, but this one seemed kind of cool. And I went initially into uh, the film group, um, but very quickly moved over to ABC to TV. Um, because it was a lot more like magazines where in the movie world you work and you work and you work and you work and you work on something and either it gets made or it doesn't but if it gets made it gets put out there and the audience either likes it or they don't but in television very much like magazines there was a conversation with that audience um, and you actually would shape series based on what you were getting back from people so so uh, one of those things I would say, connective tissue, part of the connective tissue for me has always been what's the consumer interested in, how are they changing, how are we adapting to that. Um, every success I have ever had in my life has been because I spent a lot of time trying to understand uh, how consumer behavior was changing and uh, what I could do or she do in order to adapt myself. My last job at ABC was president of entertainment. So um, it's it was the coolest job I could possibly get there. I got to determine what we were going to make for primetime. Um, it's also the only job that I feel like I never finished. Uh, I had two and a half seasons um, and felt like I was just kind of hitting my stride and understanding what – I thought was missing from the, the TV landscape and what I thought I could bring to it. Um, we actually doubled down on programming for women that last season, um, largely because uh, when I looked at, at the landscape, everybody was chasing the next CSI, the next law and order. Um, nobody wants to do narrative storytelling Certainly nobody wanted to do narrative storytelling about females. We decided we were going to go after the next Ally McBeal, the next Melrose Place, the next, I don't know, Sex and the City, and really look for shows that women wanted to watch together, wanted to talk about appointment TV for women. Um, And out of that came Desperate Housewives and Grey's Anatomy, and actually a half dozen other interesting shows that never made it to air, but certainly those two. Um, uh, and Lost, although Lost was from a different mandate that, that we had for that season, which was to shoot for the fences occasionally. Susan, um,
1: wait, uh, did you actually give Shonda Rhimes her first big TV opportunity?
0: I did. She had done, uh, and, and I have to credit my head of drama who really, um, cultivated Shonda, and she had done one movie script for Disney. Um, we gave her a chance to do a pilot that year. Um, it was a pilot about, uh, about war correspondents, female war correspondents who get sort of hooked on the excitement, the drama, um, the, Mm. The exotic locations and can't really live in the real world anymore. Um, and I didn't pick that one up, but I gave for another pilot the next year, and that one we we picked up the series which is, and it's still up yeah, there, right. which is uh, unbelievable
1: to me. I mean, maybe the long, I don't know. I would send it's 11th or 12th series. That's amazing. But the the question is, have you read her book year of yes? My not year yet, of yes, no. but
0: I did buy it. Okay. All right. Well, that's <laughs> so a free I, plug
1: for Shauna's book, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you're at yeah, ABC.
0: So, um, I get fired, uh, two weeks before the upfronts, um, uh, largely because of some politicking inside the company. My boss had been fired and, Three guys uh, who were also my sort of peers at the time figured out a way to carve up the remaining space and all get more, but it really meant that uh, they were not going to report to me. So I got moved out, and what did happen is that I got to take some time off, which I had never done since I left school, over the summer that... I, I sat around trying to figure out what I really wanted to do. Um, I went on to the board of the Martha Stewart Company. She had just been convicted of obstruction of justice and was going to have to go off to prison. And I ended up taking the job as the CEO of the Martha Stewart Company. And that was really one of the big shifts in my career. And one of the things that I really thought about a lot over the summer was that If I wanted to control my destiny, I needed to own the business side of whatever I was doing as well as the creative side. And there was a period of time where you could be essentially the creative executive um, and not have to worry about all of those kind of nasty things around EBITDA. Those days are long past, and they were even long past when I made that choice. Uh, But it was critically important for me for the rest of my career that I understand finance, understand how my business worked, what the levers were. I spent four years at the Martha Stewart Company and was on my way to taking another job very much like the one I was doing for Martha when I was kind of sidetracked by guilt and It was a moment where it was very clear to me that my old media world was changing very dramatically. This was 2008 and that if I was going to be at all relevant. So I love the fact you talk about me as being an internet executive when in fact, really I made that leap into a truly fully digital business only eight, nine years ago.
1: When you say being sidetracked by guilt, many of us are sidetracked by G U I L T, but you're referring to G I L T. Just want to be sure I that's am. clear.
0: Sorry. Yes, guilt.com. <laughs> um, and it was a little startup at the time. Uh, their lead investor uh, was a person I knew well, and he reached out to me and said, "I really would love you to to take a look at this. I think there's really something here." Truthfully, I had never seen customer love like that, and I had never seen organic growth like that. It was just one of those things that once word began to seep out that there was a place you could go where there were new sales every day, great inventory, great brands, crazy prices. And you only had a limited period of time to be able to buy. So it was all a little bit of a game as well. It spread like wildfire. And I I went from a big corner office into a workstation, which I hadn't been in for a long time. Uh, and it was the best thing I could possibly have done. When I joined the company, it was probably 30 people. We were a thousand people at its largest, but it was both an education for me and overall a very good experience for all of us. From that, I went to AOL, where I pretty quickly launched BBG Ventures, which we set up to invest in technology startups that have at least one female founder.
1: Let's talk a little bit about guilt. Um, Some people on the phone likely know about them, some people listening. So... My impression of guilt is that it did have this incredible, massive wave of support. And the best mm-hmm. way I think about it is sort of that hockey stick growth. And then, not necessarily referring to growth, but you guys got a lot more horizontal. You went into yeah. a lot of different, you went into food, you went yep. into travel. Yep. And I actually don't know my, per, I have perception as a consumer for how things went with guilt as things rolled on. But I'd love yeah. lessons learned from that experience yeah. for you.
0: Well, let's start with the one you mentioned, which is that we did go horizontal, I, I think probably faster than we should have and definitely further than we should have. So there were certain categories that were natural extensions. And if you look at where we, we ended up with guilt, the categories that worked were women's, which was always the biggest, men's, kids and home, plus Guilt City. And Guilt City really was always a very profitable part of the business. We were only in about 10 cities, so it was not like we had to have a huge infrastructure. And it became also a very good way for us to source deals that uh, were wows. So I can get back into into that in just a minute. But I think we, we diluted what we were doing when we launched Jet Setter, which was a lovely business, but very different. It was a different customer. It was a different use case. And ultimately, we sold it to TripAdvisor. And we launched Guilt Taste. We launched Guilt Japan. And we launched an offshoot called Park and Bond, which was full price men's. So look, I think we burned too much cash in too many new businesses. One of the things that that uh, I would say can happen when you have a lot of early success and for the first three, three and a half years of guilt, everything we touched was explosive and you start to believe your own mythology that you just, you're great at this and that you can take the model to multiple new places and you can build... You know, a $100 million business into a $200 million business into a $400 million business into a $600 million business, and we ultimately grew it into about a $750 million business. But there were only a few pieces of it that were really ever going to be profitable, so um, we ended up having to really step back, make a decision to cut back pretty significantly Besides selling Jet Setter, we shut down Park & Bond, we shut down Guilt Taste, and we really focused back in on on the core part of the business, which was Flash. It it was also always business that was equal parts product and merchandising. So, you know, we put on a live show every day, and I think that was one of the things that, that people got excited about. It was programming. And it was one of the reasons I think I, I had a visceral reaction to it. This was not about in to shop for something you needed. This was about turning on your screen at a certain time every day in order to participate. And knowing there was a huge audience who was watching the same thing or, or participating in the same thing with you. And... I think that's actually still a great model, and still something we should be looking at. How do you how do you bring together the um, the excitement that comes with live uh, and pair that with with commerce? Susan, as you look at yourself, and I'm going to ask you
1: here not to be incredibly humble. Consistently, what I love about your story is I think you've always been on the next discovery at every step in your career. What do you think are the three things about you as a leader that have made you successful, that make you different?
0: That's a really good question. Um, I, I would say one thing very definitely is that I spend time every single day looking at things outside of what my work is, right? So I am always looking at What's launching that is new? Or is there some new behavior taking place that I need to be aware of? I still read a ton, I still look at a ton of programming. The amount of television I watch would probably shock you. I play games when they come out. I, I really try to to understand why something is capturing consumers' imagination and I think it is really impl- it's so easy when you're starting a company and you feel like you're working 18 hours a day to say I don't have the time for anything else and there are certainly weeks and months when that's going to be the case but I think as a habit you need to you need to keep one eye on what's happening outside otherwise it's really easy for someone to come in and sort of blindside you.
1: Okay, I want to I stop you there. We're going to come back to your two others. But with respect to this one, if you wanted to keep an ambient knowledge in the most mm-hmm. efficient way you could of what's happening that is new sort of across the tech slash culture ecosystem, yep. what, what, what would be the one thing that you do that has the most impact, that's the most efficient thing you do in that arena?
0: I don't think there's one thing. Um, I always have one or two teenagers who I I talk to about what they're doing and what they're playing with. I always have one or two, uh, I would say, curators, people whose newsletter or whatever it might be pulls together some of the best things that are being written and published and made. So they become a, a quick source for me to make sure that... I'm also staying abreast of, um, of people who are writing about change and I try and go out (laughs) and I think that's, that's part of it. Get to events, get to see other people, get to see people who don't do what you do and, and find out what they're, what they're talking about.
1: All right. The two other things that make you uniquely strong as a leader.
0: I spend 30 minutes every day in a quiet place And I make notes on what I am seeing, what I am thinking, and what I think I need to do. And it's not necessarily a to-do list, although that's part of it, but it's really time for my brain to calm down and to think about a a little bit more strategically about where I'm going and where whatever my work is is going.
1: That's asynchronous? You're not on a device at that time? You're using paper and pen? I'm
0: using paper and pen, and by the way, I have determined that I am uh, my brain only really absorbs things if I write mm-hmm. it, and so I I still need to use a paper and pen more frequently than maybe a lot of other people.
1: When whenever I'm building out a talk or a speech, I use index cards and kids' magic markers. Yeah. That's my secret. Yeah.
0: that's great. Great. Okay. So number three, number three, um, hiring, being able to recruit people who I think are really good and a whole lot better than I am. I try to be a very good boss and mentor. I will say that your reputation as a person who is either good to work for or not will follow you. So really thinking hard about how you deal with people and especially when you have to do something that is not fun, not pleasant, not easy for the other person, like firing them. So making sure that the way you do it is as humane as possible and that it's not something you give short shrift to, but you really spend time with them talking about why and also talking about what they're good at, Mm -hmm. right? It may not be working for you here with me right now, but here's what I think you're great at, and I know it sounds like this is the end of the world right now, but I've been there before, and it's not. The ability to, to recruit is really, really powerful, and I think it's definitely something that is worth spending time on.
1: So I have a theory. That we all have received some version of the same feedback starting at about age two, like earliest memories. It's just some version of this thing and we work on it our entire life and we get better at it. But either when we're at we're worse our worst or we're not at our best or that thing still comes out and we tend to get feedback and it just
0: sounds different year after year if you keep working on it. So what's yours? Yeah. Mine is That's too facile. Go deeper. I heard that a lot in school. I think when you are a good early student and you know the answers to things that don't take a lot of thought, um, you get hooked on being a good student and you sometimes just want an answer, right? And the further I got into school, and in fact, the further I got into work, the more complex the questions were. I think that if I have a failing that could be fatal at some point, it's that that I want to fix it too fast, and I want to find the answer too fast. Do you ever see that in the entrepreneurs you look at or the business models you look at? I do, absolutely, and it's definitely something that I push back on too. When you see something in someone else that you've experienced yourself or you know deep down you will also suffer from. It's pretty easy to identify. It's also pretty easy to understand why people would have said it about you.
1: I like to shortcut that to you spot it, you got it. You, it's the flip side of that, that when you yeah. see something that really yeah. bothers you, it's usually your thing. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about B, BG Ventures. Tell these guys about it, what your current focus is, and why
0: it's yeah. exciting to you. This was a long time coming for me, and, and I, I would start by saying that my entire career as well, I have really spoken to female consumers um, over and over again. At, at Premier, we were about 70% female. Certainly when I was at ABC, women watch more television, we read more books, we read more magazines, we buy more stuff. So it's easier to have a career that does actually speak primarily to women. But I had not been in a world that was as heterogeneous as the DC world and the startup world um, in a long time when, when I went to Gilt. And the experience of going into rooms where every single investor around the table was a guy and where often, even if I was presenting, the question would go back to, My partner, Kevin Ryan, not to me, was fascinating after having worked in in businesses that I watched really go through profound change on gender integration, whether it was the magazine world or the entertainment world. And what was both interesting and, and troubling to me was that this new medium, which came about after Title IX, right, which should have been the most diverse, enabling everybody to have access to all the information in the world, should have been more heterogeneous than any other before it and had turned out to be the least. So I spent a lot of time with what I sort of considered the first wave of New York City female entrepreneurs around the time I was at Gilt. So that was the era when Rent the Runway was getting launched and Paperless Post and LearnVest and Birchbox and a number of companies that have actually become very successful. But over the years I was there, we developed a, a kind of breakfast club and I spent a fair amount of time on the side advising and helping women connect with the resources they needed in order to build these businesses. It was actually Kevin Ryan who said to me at one point, you know, you always look happier when you're doing that than anything else. You should make that your work. And so from that was born BBG Ventures. But there were a few other things that came together in my mind to move us to start this One was that the technology world had changed enough that it was actually possible to launch a business and see if there was market fit for hundreds of thousands of dollars, not for millions of dollars. Once that happened, it it opened up the world of the entrepreneur to a much broader universe of people. At the same time, I was seeing that all of the fastest growing parts of the internet particularly social platforms, were majority female end users. So the fact that the legacy VC world was not really looking hard at this and thinking about how to both bring female partners into their organizations who would get these businesses being pitched and also were not trying to put money into entrepreneurs who knew those end users best seemed to me both a mistake, and also a big opportunity for us. So we decided we would launch. It's a very small fund. It's it's only $10 million. We'll go out for a second fund in the second half of this year. We focus on consumer companies, although a few of our companies are b 2 b to c They still have it's a, a consumer product. We focus on marketplaces, commerce, mobile services, a little bit of IoT, a little bit of content and media, and we've got 29 companies now in the portfolio. Our investments are reasonably small. We started out making $100,000 investments now. Our initial investment is probably two fifty, okay. and we do follow on. Well, what do you look for In teams and investments. I used to say that I can be equally wooed by an amazing entrepreneur, somebody who I really believe in and think is going to do great things, or a really interesting idea that is so obvious once you hear it that you just can't believe that someone hasn't done it before.
1: In terms of your views of what makes a great entrepreneur, what rises to the top of the list?
0: Conviction, the ability to really see where the world is going and to believe powerfully that they have a, a solution to something that's not working. There are people who are good at pitching what they're doing. There are other people who you feel like have inhaled whatever this thing is that they are building, and there's nothing else they could be doing right now. This is their life. That kind of entrepreneur, you know, the happy warrior who really is only going to do this is exactly what I love.
1: Susan, my word of the month has been conviction. So it's hilarious that you said that. So best advice for early stage companies that are going into a fundraising in the next three months.
0: You really need to think much earlier than you might have planned to about how you are going to make money with what you are building, even 20 months ago when we started BBG Ventures, there were a lot of people who I would say to them, don't worry about revenue right now. Just worry about building a great product. If you get enough people who are using this, you'll figure out where the revenue is going to come. I think it's going to be a tough period of time. And I don't know how long it's going to last. If it's a year, if it's two years, if it's five years. Being efficient with the cash you raise being able to get further than you thought before you raise a true seed round or before you raise an A round. And every metric that people have told you you need to hit in order to do that raise, assume it's going to have to be 50% better. I think we have to learn to be better business people as well as being visionary entrepreneurs. One of the reasons that I think that women are going to come out of this period stronger is that we naturally are more efficient with cash we do think about you know how this is going to become a sustainable business sooner we pitch businesses instead of pitching cool ideas I think that more female entrepreneurs are going to come out of this period having built strong businesses than than guys.
1: That's a great thought. It syncs up with my view that because of the weight of evidence around the wisdom of having mixed teams, gender-balanced teams, and having female leaders all by themselves, I actually think the next five years could be the best five years to raise money if you have a female on your team than we've ever seen before at a significant multiple. Susan, that's a great note to end on and really optimistic about what you are part of and hopefully also what MergeLane is a part of. And I really appreciate you being on the call today. really appreciate you being with us. Thanks for joining Real Leaders Radio.
0: Thank you for joining us at Real Leaders Radio. To hear other episodes of this podcast or learn more about Sue Heilbronner, visit us at realleadersradio.com.